You're listening to The Feast, where we explore the great meals and drinks that made history. I'm your host, Laura Carlson. Today is part two of our episodes on the Beer Culture Summit, an event that took place back in October 2019 in the great city of Chicago. Held by the Chicago Bruseum, a museum, yes, that is dedicated entirely to the history of beer, the summit provided a unique opportunity for academics, brewers, and just all-round beer aficionados to come together, have a pint or two, and discuss all the ways that beer really and truly is culture. Now, our last episode featured an interview with founder and executive director of the Bruseum, Liz Garibay. And in our discussion, you may remember us talking about one event that took place at the summit centered all around a woman named Ella. Now, Ella lived in the 19th century in Wisconsin. And she, not unlike many women of that time and place, was a hop picker. Now, you might not think too much about it as you sip your double IPA or even throw a batch of hop pellets in your latest craft brew, but hops, for most of beer's long, long history, were occasionally hard things to come by. Now, if you've ever visited a hop farm or perhaps even went to a brewery where they were growing a few hops on the back patio, you'll know they're a pretty tall-growing and fast-growing plant. The binds, which the plant shoots out every season, are long, tenderly things, along which the little hop cones, or hop flowers, will grow. And these binds, well, they grow pretty fast and pretty tall. Hops will almost grow as high as you let them, seven, eight, nine feet in the air. But when harvest time comes around, you better be ready. Those little hop cones, flowery, sticky little things, all need to be pulled off those very tall binds without being too bruised or broken. You'll need them for beer after all. Today, most hop harvesting is industrialized, thanks to the invention of what is known as a mechanical hops separator, something that was invented only as recently as 1909. Pretty recently, if you think about the long thousand-year history of beer making. Before 1909, hop cones had to be pulled off the bine by hand, one by one. It was long, sticky, and hot work. But who was doing this hop harvesting work? Well, particularly in America, this was often women's work. Year after year, women, particularly in states like Wisconsin, which had considerable hop farms throughout the late 19th century, well, these women would move from town to town, farm to farm, working as seasonal hop pickers. These hops were then shipped to breweries in cities like Milwaukee, Chicago, even St. Louis, where names like Anheuser-Busch, Schlitz, and Miller were coming into their own. These women were the backbone of America's burgeoning beer industry. But rarely has their story been told. Well, until now. During the summit, I had the chance to speak with a researcher who's helping to bring this forgotten industry and the women who worked in it back to the public eye. Dr. Jennifer Jordan is the professor and department chair of sociology and urban studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. 
She had spent the last few years researching and writing about the forgotten hop industry of the 19th century, focusing on women like Ella, who helped to make America's beer industry what it was. Jennifer and I had the chance to chat in a very appropriate setting during the summit back in October at the Chicago History Museum. Alongside a fantastic tour led by Liz Garibay herself, Jennifer and I ducked into one of the exhibition rooms to chat a bit about her research, Ella's life, and what hop picking was all about during the 19th century. Uh, Well, I'm Jennifer Jordan, and I am a professor of sociology and urban studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And I am currently writing my third book, which is about hops. And it is mostly about hop growing in 19th century Wisconsin and California. Which is a fantastic topic. Um, I feel like I have been, I don't want to say stalking, but I've been following you on Twitter (laughs) for a while. And you come out with the most wonderful photos and kind of tidbits of history of something that I think, myself included, had not really thought about the process of obviously hops as a major component today and, you know, kind of 19th century India, mm-hmm. but how exactly one collects hops, um, one harvests hops, and particularly how labor-intensive it was in the 19th century, and also the demographics of who exactly was harvesting hops mm-hmm. in the 19th century. So I was wondering if you might kind of sketch a a brief picture of what exactly was the hop harvesting process like in this mid to latter 19th century that that you're digging into. Sure, sure. Well, it looks different depending on what part of the country you're in and also depending on the decade and even depending on the region. But certainly New York, uh, upstate New York and Wisconsin relied heavily on young white women to do most of the harvesting. And again, this is pulling every single blossom off the vine by hand uh, in order to put it in a box or a sack and uh, take it to the kiln very quickly and then usually put it on a rail car heading toward, if they're in Wisconsin, heading toward Milwaukee, uh, and then sometimes beyond Milwaukee to Chicago, St. Louis, New York, uh, depending on the market that year. So in Wisconsin, the there was not enough labor on a given farm to harvest the hops if the farmer were growing on a commercial scale. So they need... Um, a labor force to come in from outside. So that could be young women from nearby farms, but usually they needed more people than that. So they would come from farther away and be put up at the farmhouse. Uh, So sleeping in the attic, there was one house that I've read about that had special built-in bunks for the annual hop harvest. And this could involve the women of the household then stuffing straw ticks for all these young women workers to sleep on and baking ahead of time, preparing all of this food that the hot pickers were going to eat. They're working all day. They're, of course, very hungry after this long, hard work day. Um, and so they have to sustain this labor force in order to get this very fragile crop from the field and out onto those rail cars. And I, I'd love to know how you first came to the to this kind of very um i think untold portion of, of brewing and kind of history of beer and the ingredients that go into beer i mean, i know you've done a lot of work on kind of food history mm-hmm. um culinary history mm-hmm. how how did you seize on hops as the focus of your kind of next phase of research 
Uh, it was a couple different ways. One is that when I finished the work on tomatoes, I started thinking about how craft beer, you know, or beer in general follows a trajectory very similar to the one that heirloom tomatoes followed, where you take a kind of ordinary object and then begin to invest it with other kinds of symbolic value, financial value. So it has this kind of strange arc or career of becoming fancy. And that became interesting to me. But a lot of people are working on that. And so I kept sort of looking for my niche and a way in. And I read Richard Unger's wonderful book, I think I'm going to get the title wrong, but it's something like Beer and Brewing in Renaissance and Medieval Europe. And there's a moment in there when he, it's sort of an aside, but he mentions hops being grown in Hamburg and along the Baltic coast, Rostock, uh, cities that I have never associated with hop growing. In German hops, you think of Bavaria, uh, for example, and not the northern German coast. But here was there were these stories of hops being grown outside of these Baltic cities and the North Sea cities. And that just sort of lit a little light bulb on in my head to think about, well, where else were hops grown that nobody remembers? And lo and behold, two states that I'm very familiar with, California, where I grew up, and Wisconsin, where I've lived for the last 20 years, these two states used to be really dominant in hop cultivation in the United States in the 19th century. And then it almost completely disappeared uh, in both states by the start of the 20th century, a little bit longer in California. Um, it just disappeared earlier in Wisconsin. But that I'm fascinated by uh, disappeared forms of agriculture, uh, forgotten kind of landscapes of production, and partly because it's a reminder to us that the contemporary agricultural landscapes that we inhabit are also fleeting right? It can feel very permanent and like, well, of course it's going to be this way, but they're in transition as we speak. And in another hundred years, they'll look very different to kind of what's around us today. And I, I suppose I, I'm unfamiliar with kind of how hops started mm -hmm. in, in Wisconsin or California. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe they're, you know, who was bringing them over right. and what kinds were they bringing over and has that change or I mean you know they, mm -hmm. as you said they've disappeared and kind mm -hmm. of in some sense re-emerged as like wild plants um but I was wondering maybe you could sketch out just the, these varieties I know there's so many varieties of pops right. um how did they get their start in these places right well so there were indigenous North American hops I think three or four uh, varieties but rarely used in brewing. And so this uh, hop cultivation in Wisconsin involved importing other hop roots. Um, so that's people travel with the rhizome. This isn't something that people are really growing from seed. They chop up the roots and then bring, bring pieces of the roots to plant and start new rhizomes um, and new hop hills. So this has been one of my big questions guiding this research is when did hops first arrive in Wisconsin? And I've really been able to, there's lots of legends about it. There's this Hungarian count who's kind of credited with doing this. And I have found zero evidence uh, that he actually was the first to bring hops or that he even brought any hops at all. It doesn't mean he didn't, but I haven't found the evidence. I have found much more robust evidence for three other farmers um, to be the ones who brought hop roots, and they were primarily bringing them from New York State. These were people who had upstate New York connections. Some of them were English and then lived in New York State for a decade or so. 
uh, and then moved on to Wisconsin and uh, brought hop roots with them in some cases in a barrel in their wagon. In other cases, had them shipped on a, a, I think a schooner rather than a steamship, although I'm not sure, across Lake Michigan, and then had to drive from Waukesha you know, with a wagon to to Milwaukee, which was a long haul back then, and pick up the hop roots and bring them back. And most of them didn't make it also, unsurprisingly. It's a long journey. Yes. <laughs> and then um, as far as California, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a much longer journey from New York. Yes. Um, it, was it the same style that there were in kind of native hops or indigenous hop plants, mm-hmm. and but also was supplemented with people bring them over? Yeah, to, to be honest, I can't remember the range of the Western indigenous hops, and I'm not sure how widespread they were in California. So I definitely see accounts in early European sort of travel logs from the 17th, 18th century of hops growing alongside Midwestern rivers and people using that as a kind of indication of fertility and of the appropriateness of the land for sort of colonizing European plants. In California, I'm not quite as sure, but there too, it was European, you know, white settlers bringing um, hops with them. The sort of forgotten part of some of this is that people were brewing long before there were hop industries in either Wisconsin or California. And so hops were being imported before uh, a really robust agriculture, hop agriculture developed in these places. And um, that those flows of hops, again, from New York State, sometimes from Germany, is really important to track. As you were speaking, it, it just kind of sparked a thought in my mind, um, because I know, I think today, most people would say hops equal beer, mm-hmm. um, in the sense of what are hops used for? They are used in beer. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously there are non-hoppy beers, but uh, I think that's the association we have. Mm-hmm. And it is something that I've kind of only started to understand that hops actually have a much wider culinary and, I mean, you almost might want to say medicinal range of uses. Mm-hmm. Um, were people using hops for things other than beer, do you know? So there's a lot of legend around this. And uh, honestly, I, I'm still in search of the science of it. So there's a lot of talk about hops uh, making you sleepy, hops being used medicinally. I have a little box of hops uh, that I bought at a thrift, like a antique market. Um, and I think that was probably a medicinal quantity. It's, it's individual hop blossom leaves pressed into this little box and it was sold as patent medicine. I Again, I still haven't really seen the good science on how hops are effective medicinally, but there are legends around that. There's also something involved with be, uh, bread baking, so a hop yeast that I also don't understand. But when I do newspaper searches for old articles on hops, uh, that's one of the categories of articles that comes up. Okay. And, and when you're doing a lot of your... Um, I mean, as far as when you've looked at the the hop picking and the hop harvesting mm-hmm. that's going on in uh, Wisconsin and California, mm-hmm. most of those hops that you've seen are going towards beer. Absolutely. Oh. That's the, totally the, the dominant and almost sole use of it. Okay. Um, so yeah, I was wondering, is there, you know, a side hop tea business that I wasn't aware of sometime in Wisconsin or things like that? Not that I know of. No, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like by that point, you know, the, the beer industry is particularly like in Wisconsin, the Midwest, they, they had call for hops. So I think that they had enough justification to, to pull all those things down. Mm-hmm. 
Last night, there was a fantastic presentation um, of a collaborative beer Mm -hmm. um, that was kind of a tip of the hat to one of the um, individuals that you have found in the course of your research um, who was a hop picker. Um, And I was wondering if you might be able to tell, like, I I don't want you to have to redo your entire (laughs) presentation, but maybe, you know, a a quick summary of, of who... Ella was, um, and maybe how she was emblematic, really, of, as you were mentioning at the beginning, this annual hop harvesting, kind of the hop pickers coming to the farm um, to do this harvesting, and and how Ella and Ella's beer um, kind of reflects that. Sure, yeah. So Ella is uh, a real person, or was a real person, and I learned about her simply because her diary is included in the box of papers left from her father. And when I searched for hops as a subject heading at the Wisconsin Historical Society, that box of papers came up because her father was a hop farmer. So there are account books from his hop yard and letters that he wrote. But there's also this slim little diary that his daughter Ella kept uh, in the 1870s. And so I opened it up and just immediately was reading about all the details of all of the work that went into hosting all the hop pickers every year, and then picking the hops themselves. So Ella engaged both in that domestic labor and in the uh, hop picking herself. And so it's really a detailed account of all the washing and baking and churning and everything that had to happen in order to host all of these people. Now, I don't want to interrupt the conversation here too much. But I should mention that those faint sounds of trumpets you're hearing in the background isn't your imagination. Jennifer and I happen to have chosen the one room at the Chicago History Museum that was filled with small dioramas, each one showcasing, in miniature, a scene from Chicago's history. And as it turned out, some of those dioramas had music with them. And perhaps there were some young visitors to the museum that day who loved hearing those trumpets. I happen to think it gives the whole discussion an air of importance, don't you think? And so Ella is just one case, and it's one where we have the good fortune to have so much detail. So that experience is repeated over and over and over again, from one farmhouse to the next, one group of laborers to the next. And so Ella is kind of a lens into all of those different experiences, and I wish there were more diaries. I wish there were more letters, but we can use hers to at least start to understand what that process was like, what that annual harvest was like. I absolutely want to ask about kind of your research and the sources that you've been able to use, because mm-hmm. I feel like there was a great, um, you had so many great visuals of you looking through mm-hmm. kind of how you've been able to dig into these stories mm-hmm. um, and the source material that is involved in digging through these um, stories. Um, but I'd love just maybe very quickly to talk about um, kind of the collaboration beer that um, was unveiled last night mm-hmm. um, because it was a collaboration between Eris and I just want to make sure I have the yep. names and everything right. Eris Brewing in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And four sheets? Three sheets. <laughs> Three sheets brewing um, in Sheboygan? Sheboygan. Yes. Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Okay. I got the impression that they were going for kind of more of a um, historically kind of... Like in a tribute. A tribute yes. beer, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something not necessarily that was 
exceptionally hop forward, right. but something that was perhaps exactly what the hop pickers would want after a hot day <laughs> um, out in the fields, um, collecting all these very sticky hop uh, cones right. and things like that. So how, how are you involved in kind of the collaboration beer? Oh, I, I was on one of the most fun conference calls I've ever, usually I don't like conference calls at all, but being on a conference call with a couple of brewers is very enjoyable and it was very creative and very exciting to discuss this process. And for me, it was really important that the recipe include at least some cluster hops and they ended up using all cluster, which I just find really and poignant and important because that is most likely the type of hop that Ella would have been harvesting. And so again, it's, it's not necessarily trying to be exactly like a beer of that time period, but trying to evoke some of the qualities a beer would have had then. And cluster was a dominant hop used in American brewing in the 19th century. Again, just kind of going back to the varieties and styles of hops, mm -hmm. Um, was a cluster hop um, an indigenous hop, or was that one of those perhaps brought over by the count? Right. Uh, my understanding is that they're from New York State, oh. uh, and so that that they are mostly a, originally a European hop, and that there may this. I don't want to get this wrong because the hop people, you know, know their stuff <laughs> very well. Yes, you have um, an angry hop now. <laughs> right, uh, but it is not. It's certainly not originally a Wisconsin hop, uh, and it is also importantly not a German hop. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. so we can trace it perhaps to New York State. Yes. And then going earlier than that, things get a little bit unclear. Right. Um, right. But, but perhaps brought over from Europe. Right. And possibly point. combined with an indigenous North American hop. Interesting. Sort of briefly. Uh, okay. And just, I'm, I'm on a, a thread here now that we've talked about cluster hops. Um, and cluster hops then I would imagine did not pop up in California? They did. Oh, they because did. this that same kind of plant then carries forward. Oh. Uh, and so, yeah, there's lots of cluster in the United States. And the same type of immigration within the United States, right? It's New Yorkers moving to Wisconsin. That's then happening with California. So Wisconsinites move out to California. Uh, and I have some examples of, you know, folks, hop farmers leaving Wisconsin, going to California. And um, and then people also trying to start hop industries there because clearly there's a demand for beer, mm -hmm. uh, but people are getting hops shipped from uh, the East Coast. And this is, again, right around that mid to latter 19th mm -hmm. century area. Mm -hmm. And then is it also, have you focused on a, a specific area in California? Um, was this where the cluster hops kind of popped up or is it kind of north to south San Diego to San Francisco? So I, I don't, A, I don't know the varieties as well in California. So there may have been other things beyond, uh, there probably were at a certain point. Uh, California is so varied. So in Wisconsin, the sort of forms of hop agriculture are pretty similar from one county to the next, right? The farm sizes are kind of the same. The labor practices are kind of the same. In California, it's so varied. So you have hops growing in Sonoma County. So many of the places that are on wine grapes today would have been hops uh, in the 19th century, particularly the 
uh, alluvial plains. So along the Russian River, which you know we also think of in terms of beer, but now it's it's all in grapes, all the flatlands uh, in the alluvial plain of the Russian River. But much of that was in hops in the 19th century. Those were still smaller scale farms using smaller labor forces. The Sacramento Valley, on the other hand, huge alluvial plains. You can have much larger farms, much larger workforces, and so very different labor practices. Okay. Because you have this wonderful image last night and actually like during the sessions as well of the style where they were all on poles. Right. Um, and so is that what you mean where there were different kind of styles of growing the hops that Wisconsin was the pole yeah. where not the trellis that Correct. I feel like we think of and see mm-hmm. a lot today, but the, you kind of string it up on a pole or you attach the bind to the top of the pole or how do you do that? With the, the pole growing, um, you, you stick the pole in the hop hill. Um, and the hop hill is full of the rhizomes uh, and the hop, every year it dies all the way back and then it grows anew. And so it grows, winds up that pole. Uh, and then people, there's a moment in the spring where you come and start training it um, and then trim off excess vines that you don't want to grow up. And then when it comes time to harvest, people lift the pole out of the ground and then lay it across a couple of boxes. And usually that's a man doing that job in the 19th century in Wisconsin. And then women pull the blossoms off of the vine. And I remember you were again mentioning that there was a lot of sometimes uh, courtship that was going on Indeed. between the, the um, pole layer mm-hmm. and, and the ladies who were picking mm-hmm. up the vines uh, or the, of the cones. Yeah. Right. If there was not the pole method in California, what, how were they harvesting? Uh, so there was some pole, to the best of my knowledge, there was some uh, pole hop growing out there and then trellising started in uh, California and then also certainly the Pacific Northwest. So that's a place we've hardly even mentioned today, completely dominant in hop growing today and became important already in the 19th century. But there's also really great research on that already. Uh, The book Hoptopia, for example, that goes into great detail. And so that my focus then is more on these, the forgotten kind of failed, um, eventually failed, very successful at different moments, but then vanished locations of hop cultivation. Was there a, have you, and again, I feel very unknowledgeable about this, but um, was there a reason that the hops in Wisconsin just ceased to be such a massive industry? There are several reasons, and it, it's sort of hard to pinpoint just one. But one major thing that happened with Wisconsin is there was a huge boom in the 1860s and then a huge crash. So people lost their shirts uh, in 1869. And part of what happened was the pop harvest in New York State failed and there was a blight. Um, and so suddenly there was enormous demand for anywhere else that could produce hops. And so people started making huge amounts of money farming hops in Wisconsin. And so lots of people tried to get in on it. Uh, and so a couple of things happened, overproduction, and then New York came back online, the blight ended. And so the demand for Wisconsin hops crashed, right? The market was glutted. And And so all of these people lost hop farms. Hop cultivation continued after that. A blight also came to Wisconsin, unsurprisingly. These are finicky plants. But people did continue farming them, just not in the same numbers. And then eventually it really just died out and dairy farming took over. So Wisconsin went through several 
rounds of attempting to find a successful agriculture um, in the wake of white settler colonialism um, and find ways to use this land to make money and started out with wheat and then wheat started to fail hops sugar beets tobacco all of these things were attempted hemp uh, in order to make money off this land and then dairying really kind of settled in as the dominant agricultural form and i feel like they've been running with the dairy ever since right. <laughs> and facing challenges with it now too right Absolutely. that's part of the story of kind of constant upheaval and change in agriculture. It is interesting because, um, you know, I was thinking about, I did something about the kind of origins of American oranges. Mm -hmm. And it felt like oranges had a very similar story with kind of the LA area. And I mean, a lot of kind of Southern California in general, uh, they were trying everything they could in California to see what was going to stick. So they were Mm -hmm. like, you know, trying silk and, you know, mulberries and everything. And Oranges for them were the thing that stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder, you know, at the same time, they probably tried their hand at hops. They did. And in fact, there were hops growing in Anaheim at one point near Disneyland, right? Or today's Disneyland. And but in that's Orange County. In Orange County, <laughs> right. And so that the idea of, I was so surprised to see that. But there were significant numbers of hops um, grown in Anaheim at a certain point. You think, you know, we could have been in Hop County, California, yes. <laughs> Orange County, California. I, I feel like this ties into, because this is something, again, you mentioned in, in the presentation about how you've gone about finding the evidence for these hop farms. And this has involved a lot of kind of archival research and the libraries and whatnot, but it has also included mm-hmm. you going down to, you know, the, the physical locations mm-hmm. of these farms and finding of the great-great-grandchildren of the original hops that have survived in some way. So I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit about the, the various places you have traveled to, to find these hops. Sure, yeah. I, so I use um, old property maps and the agricultural census from the 19th century and contemporary tax records to you know, triangulate the locations of former hop farms. And this is very time consuming. <laughs> this is not, and I don't have staff, right? So I'm not, I, once, <laughs> once in a while I have a graduate student for 10 hours a week who I can get some assistance from, but, uh, and they've done a great job collecting some census data for me, et cetera. But I spend a lot of time triangulating these sources and then really trying to pinpoint where hop farms would have been. Uh, and I've been focusing on Sauk County in Wisconsin. And so I, this summer, I drove around with these coordinates uh, in my phone to try to find hops growing wild. And I, I lucked out and I found hops growing across the street from the farm that was the first site where hops were grown in Sauk County, to the best of my knowledge. And this involves lots of nettles, uh, blackberries, um, a mild wild parsnip burn. (laughs) I also uh, met a farmer who knew of a hop plant that had grown up around a cherry tree that then fell down. And so she wasn't sure if the hops were still there. So she and I basically dove into a nettle and blackberry thicket in search of the hop plant, and we found it. (laughs) That is active history research right there. Um, You can have like, you know, the the, the scrapes from the briars Mm -hmm. and brambles um, as proof of your research. Yes. And then you've actually found, kind of coming back to Ella's story, it seems like there was a large box, and I'm not sure the Mm -hmm. the actual 
um, library archive where Ella's family's kind of box was located. Yes. Uh, This is at the Wisconsin Historical Society, which is a treasure trove. And uh, it is, it's sort of remarkable how these stories just sit in a file folder in a cardboard box, you know, well cataloged. It was certainly there for the finding using the keyword of hops. And that's thanks to the work of archivists and librarians for making these sources available. But uh, to, to sit in the archive, open up that folder, open up that diary, and then another document where a photo of Ella kind of fell out um, on the table in front of me was really powerful. And that story really comes alive. Yeah. And, and you were saying, because again, I was drinking up all of these presentations, <laughs> not <laughs> literally. Literally, <laughs> yes. Um, and as part of the story you were mentioning, you know, Ella, unfortunately, died quite young. She did. Um, and you were able to find her, her gravestone. Yes. And you actually did find hops not too far from that area? Right. The, the hops that I uh, mentioned finding near the farm that first grew hops uh, in Wisconsin, that was a farmer who her family interacted with regularly. So he was just down the road. I haven't explored Ella's farm yet. And that, that's sort of on my agenda is to get in touch with the contemporary owners and talk about whether... You know, I can look at the edges of their property because that's what happens is the rhizomes, you know, no people aren't growing hops anymore. They might be growing corn or soybeans or something else, um, alfalfa. And so the rhizomes move to the edges of the property where then they won't get mowed down or weeded out. And so that's the place to look if you're searching for those descendants of the 19th century hops. I feel like when you go and knock on that door of the property, you should bring like a six pack of beer and say, look, I have this beer from you. Like this was inspired by essentially your property. Um, Can I take a look around? Right. (laughs) I think that's a good, that's a usually good opener to uh, a historical conversation indeed Indeed. well thank you so much for for talking with me in in complete with uh musical interludes yes (laughs) that was our discussion with dr jennifer jordan of the university of wisconsin milwaukee a conversation graciously hosted by the chicago history museum which if you're in the neighborhood is a must see not only for those fantastic dioramas complete with music but also for their amazing archival materials documenting the beer history of the city. A couple of the staff had pulled out some amazing photos and diaries of early brewing when we visited as part of the summit. And we'll put some of the photos we took of these materials up on our website at thefeastpodcast.org. But honestly, if you're in the area, you gotta go. They have one of the few remaining original trolley cars that took people to the World's Columbian Exposition held in the city in 1893. You can also try your hand at riding a penny-farthing bicycle. It's worth a visit. You can also learn more about Jennifer's research by following her on Twitter at EdibleMemory. She's still hard at work on her upcoming book about hop picking called Before Craft Beer, The Lost Landscapes of Forgotten Hops. But in the meantime, check out her other books, Edible Memory, The Lure of Heirloom Tomatoes and Other Forgotten Foods, as well as Structures of Memory, Understanding Urban Change in Berlin and Beyond. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Our digital director and photographer is Mike Port. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram and Twitter at feast underscore podcast, where we put up some extra images from our travels and discoveries about food history. 
You can also follow us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter to get all the news directly at thefeastpodcast.org. We'll be back soon with another great meal that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.